My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, of any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. I'm about to tell you about my favorite piece of funerary sculpture in the country. And by funerary sculpture, I mean a statue that sits above a dead person. The story is one of suicide and art, theft and lore. It starts with a death, continues through a sculpture, multiple sculptures actually, and then ends with a haunting. Tracking the physical elements of this story has led me through two graveyards, a museum, a courthouse, and an artist's studio. From mere steps away from the White House in Washington, D.C., to a mile away from the New Hampshire-Vermont border. Just by itself, the statue is fascinating. Let me see if I can describe it for you. It is a dark, enigmatic bronze figure seated on a rock, its hand lightly touching its face, and its eyes closed in eternal contemplation. The lines of its form are softened and hidden by a full-length shroud. It has no gender, none that we can tell anyway. It's as mysterious as it is serene, as spooky as it is enthralling. It is absolutely back-tattoo-worthy. This is the Adams Memorial in Rock Creek Park Cemetery in Washington, D.C. Henry Adams was a 19th century Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author and part of the prominent Adams family that gave the country two of its presidents and plenty of other politicos, magnates, and various overachievers. But despite all of his literary works, his most enduring contribution to humanity might be the single sculpture he commissioned to sit above his dead wife, his dead wife that committed suicide. Marion Hooper Adams, better known as Clover to her friends, was born to a wealthy Beacon Street family in Boston and married Henry at age 28. Socialite and photographer are the two words usually used to describe Clover, with the latter, photographer, taking on a particularly grim relevance to her death at age 42. In December of 1885, Henry found her on the bedroom rug in front of the fireplace. She had downed potassium cyanide, a chemical used in the development of photos. She left no suicide note as far as we know, but hypotheses for her demise fill out the usual spectrum for suicide. Basically, no one knows why Clover killed herself. Perhaps even including Henry Adams himself. A friend of Clover's, author Henry James, who we all know for The Turn of the Screw, probably put it best in a letter to another friend when he wrote that Clover had found, quote, the solution of the naughtiness of existence, end quote. And my (laughs) enunciation is probably messing that quote up for you. That's naughtiness, as in K-N-O-T-T-I-N-E-S-S not naughtiness, N-A-U-G-H-T-I-N-E-S-S. Basically, life was very tangled for her, and she felt the way out might have been to drink chemical death. There's a lot of mystery about the Adams relationship, about Clover and Henry together, mostly because of how Henry reacted to her death. He burned their correspondence and some of his diaries from that period of his life. It's assumed that if she did write a suicide note, it was torched as well, Clover wasn't mentioned in his autobiography either, which was the one that won the Pulitzer 
after he died. In fact, the book skipped the whole two-decade period of his marriage to her. Very, very odd. However, the one thing we can be sure of out of this whole entire situation is that out of that tragedy came an amazing statue. To memorialize his wife, and himself eventually, Adams commissioned a statue by renowned sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens. St. Gaudens was from Dublin and was a major high-profile talent. His work can be seen on everything from coins to monuments across the country today. Adams tasked St. Gaudens to create something unknowable, something passive, something very distant from the cloying hopefulness of most funerary art. Henry didn't want praying hands. He didn't want saviors with uplifted eyes. He didn't want angels embracing various things. He wanted it to be exactly what death is, a great unknown. He didn't even want the statue to have a name, although when the two talked about it, him and St. Gaudens, they bandied about peace of God and mystery of the hereafter. But once the statue was erected over the remains of his wife, the throngs of people who immediately flocked to it as a tourist attraction called it grief. It's a decent name for this statue. It's very simple. It's exactly what motivated it. But it still comes up short in describing this statue that is obviously not in any throes of deep emotions, but is instead thinking about something that is unplumbable. But it's still a good name. Grief. I've been to the Adams Memorial multiple times in my life, over the course of enough years that my photos show it at various levels of oxidization, from dark black to mint green, and me in the photos with the uh, memorial at various levels of decay and questionable fashion sense. Rock Creek Cemetery, where the, the grave and statue is, is full of amazing sculpture and would be worth visiting for taphophiles even without that enigmatic figure there. In fact, not only has this artwork been purposefully shielded from any predetermined meaning, it's also been purposefully shielded from the context of the cemetery. The plot is surrounded by tall bushes that encase it inside its own private space. You have to enter into this plot to see it, basically. The statue is backdropped by a door-sized slab of plain stone, and directly across from it is a long, curving bench bookended by eagle talons. The plot was actually designed by Stanford White, the architect of the second Madison Square Garden. He was murdered in his own creation by a jealous husband during a play. But that's obviously a different story. More telling than who architected the plot is that no names adorn the memorial. None at all. Not Clover's, not Henry's, not the famous Adam's name. Just two interlocking wreaths carved into the back of the pedestal is all that tells the tale of the Adams on their final resting place. Graveyards and cemeteries are custom-made for reflection, to think about the people who have gone before us and to imagine our own paths, following them straight into the ground. But never in my hundreds of visits to cemeteries all over the world have I ever felt so compelled to sit and reflect on that idea than within this almost holy of holies that is the Adams Memorial plot to lower myself onto that bench and try to match that statue thought for thought. It's a sculpture without baggage, in a pocket of silence, something that exists independent of everything around it. This statue could be guarding treasure in a ruined temple or buried on the moon, waiting for us to find it, or at the top of a dome in a faraway country. But it's in a cemetery, 
one that all of us can go see. Uh, looking at it, you actually wonder, at the very least, if this figure should be in a museum, protected from the elements, instead of out here in the middle of the fickle seasons of the Mid-Atlantic. Turns out it is in a museum. It is in the museum of the country. A casting of the Adams Memorial resides in the Smithsonian American Art Museum. But even at that August DC institution, they've separated the sculpture from all the other artworks and installed it at the end of a hall, at the dead end of a hall by itself, and then backdropped this sculpture with a scene out of a graveyard. Because even in a museum, it really truly belongs in a graveyard. Or maybe even two graveyards, but I'll get to that part of the story later on. Where we need to go next is 500 miles north to Cornish, New Hampshire. When I moved to New Hampshire from the D.C. area, I thought that my obsession with the Adams Memorial was behind me. No more could I just go see it whenever I wanted to. Instead, it turned into something I would suggest to other people who were visiting D.C. Make sure you go to Rock Creek Cemetery. Make sure you see grief. But then I saw it in New Hampshire, the exact same statue that is in that graveyard, and in the Smithsonian. The reason for that is that St. Gaudens had an out-of-the-way estate in Cornish. It's a small town about 50 miles northwest of the state capital of Concord and right next to Vermont. It's the same town that J.D. Salinger hid in to get away from all the phonies, to give you some context. St. Gaudens set it up as an art colony of sorts, with a home and a studio and beautifully landscaped grounds and views. He stayed there during the summers, usually, but eventually he moved there. And from 1900 to his death in 1907, it was his primary residence. Today, it's a National Historic Site, which means we can all visit it. And it's a beauty of a place. It has views of mountains, lattices covered in grapevines, flower gardens. You can tour his home, see his studio, or just wander the grounds, marveling at all the castings of his statues they have, including grief, including the Adams Memorial. It was strange to see it in New Hampshire. I was used to it being in the middle of a graveyard in D.C., but here it was, sitting and pondering death among the colors of an early New England fall. The statue itself might have been surrounded by completely different flora than it was in D.C., but it was still just as inscrutable, just as mysterious, almost like it had known I was coming and moved ahead of me, like it was now haunting me in a physical way along with a mental way it had haunted me over the years. Speaking of that, the Adams Memorial does have an actual haunt story, one that involves glowing eyes and copyright violation, a druid's ridge and a deadly curse, even the White House. I mean, it seems almost inevitable, right? Almost every figural graveyard sculpture accretes spooky lore of some sort, especially if time and weather have oxidized its face into a creepy rictus of horror, transmuting an expression of grief into an expression of terror, eternal hope into demonic frenzy, Basically, you stick a graveyard statue out in the weather long enough, and it gets creepy. It's almost as if just the mere sight of an upright human form in a cemetery is alien enough to us to completely unnerve us and make us see spooks. That said, if any graveyard figure were immune to paranormal projecting like that, you'd think it'd be the Adams Memorial. It's famous, it's hallowed, it's important. It is well known, so you'd think it would be able to transcend mere ghost stories that get attached to every other kind of anonymous grave statue or stone in a cemetery. That teenage myths would just bounce off its bronze flanks. And in a way, it has been immune. But in another way, a very interesting way, it hasn't. I mentioned it before, but almost as soon as the Adams Memorial was installed, it became a tourist destination. 
everybody wanted to see this enigmatic statue that marked this enigmatic death as if any minute all of that bronze pondering was going to yield answers to the thorny quandaries of life and death. It was popular enough, in fact, that in 1907, about 15 years after its installation and the same year that St. Gaudens himself died, somebody ripped off the statue completely. The Adams Memorial received that sincerest form of flattery at the behest of a General Felix Agnes, a French-born Civil War veteran and newspaper publisher in Baltimore. It's a little fuzzy who the IP thief actually was. Maybe it was Agnes. Maybe it was the sculptor. Maybe it was the company that hired the sculptor for Agnes. But somebody okayed the illegal copying of the Adams Memorial for General Agnes. The sculptor's name was Edward Pausch. He also created the death mask of William McKinley after that president's assassination in Buffalo. General Agnes proudly erected Pausch's replica on his family plot in Druid Ridge Cemetery in Pikesville, Maryland, which is about 35 miles from Rock Creek Cemetery, where the original, the Adams Memorial itself, looms. This is where things get all accusatory. It's a little hard to parse the details, but it looks like the widow of St. Gaudens either publicly denounced the illegal copy or actually sued the general over it. The general, in turn, proclaimed his innocence and might have even sued the sculptor. Whatever the details, people got really mad over this copy. However, despite all those transgressions of law and art and public opinion, Agnes was allowed to keep his knockoff. And in 1925, he was actually buried under it. So he kind of wins in the end. Except that that wasn't the end. See, I visited Druid Ridge Cemetery a few years ago, and all I found... At Agnes's plot was the statue's empty pedestal. No knockoff of the Adams Memorial at all. It had a tall rectangular stone backdrop, just like the Adams Memorial did in Rock Creek Cemetery. But it was different in key aspects. See, on its base was Agnes's actual surname. A base relief of Agnes the size of a dinner plate adorned the back of the pedestal. So it was a little bit more detailed than what Adams went for with his pedestal. But it's still an empty throne, and it's the empty throne of what we know as the Black Aggie. And this is where things get spooky. In a bit of a karmic twist, while the Adams Memorial attracted artistic adulation, the Agnes Memorial attracted creepy legends. The clone was dubbed the Black Aggie due to the color of the metal and the name on his pedestal. Agnes became Aggie. And in the process, it was given a gender. It was given a female gender. She was the dark shadow of the Adams Memorial. The Jekyll to its hide, the Liam to its knoll. She became one of Maryland's most prominent spooks. They said, the they that are always saying these things, said that her eyes glowed red at night. And if you looked into them, you'd go blind. They also said that if a pregnant woman walked through her shadow, that woman would miscarry. They said that if you sat on her lap or stayed overnight with her, you would die. They said that she attracted ghosts from all corners of Druid Ridge like a paranormal beacon. They said that she was haunted by the ghost of Clover Adams herself. That's a lot of baggage for a hunk of bronze placidly sitting there trying to figure out eternity. Perhaps the most tragic story of the Black Aggie was that in 1962, her arm went missing and was found in the car of a local sheet metal worker who claimed that the statue had ripped it off herself and handed it to him. That is an image. This is an oddly specific story. From the body part to the vocation of the person who received it. But just a glance at a photo of the Black Aggie 
reveals a problem with it. You can't really hack her arm off. Uh, like the original sculpture, like the Adams Memorial, the arm is almost a solid piece with the statue. Or one of them is. The other one is hidden below the folds of the robe. However, sharp-eyed taphophiles, those who love graves, have pointed out a nearby grave sculpture to the Black Aggie. One that, like her, is female, is seated, and is absolutely oxidized into creepiness. Her name, the name of that statue, is Clotho, after one of the three fates of Greek legend who determine the individual links of our mortal lives. That statue has an arm extending away from the body as she spins out the threads of human existence, but also makes it vulnerable to hacking off by certain disturbed individuals. So I walked over to the statue and I looked closely at her forearm. And indeed, I saw a deep gash in the metal of her arm, like someone had tried to hack that arm off. Maybe, just maybe, and possibly probably, somebody looking for the legendary Black Aggie got confused in the dark, in a cemetery, surrounded by spooky figures, and tried to cut the wrong arm off. So, regardless of the truth of that story, things did get bad with the Black Aggie. So bad, in fact, that in 1967, Druid Ridge didn't want the statue around anymore. Too much trouble, too many people coming to see it, too many stories, too much of a bad reputation. So, they donated it to the Smithsonian, the same Smithsonian that holds a casting of the original Adams Memorial. Except the Black Aggie didn't get that kind of august treatment. She was shoved in a basement that ensured nobody could stare at her eyes or walk through her shadow. That means that while the Adams Memorial lorded itself in a gallery, the Black Aggie moldered in the underworld of the museum archives. But, as much as it sounds like it, that's not the end of the Black Aggie. The museum kicked that statue out of its official collection. It couldn't even sit in the basement and gather dust. It had to leave the premises. It became unsmithsonian worthy. So, in 1987... The General Services Administration, the GSA, which has the least interesting mandate of all federal organizations, it's basically dedicated to office management, asked for the statue because they thought it would make a great garden gnome, basically, in the courtyard of the National Courts Building. And that's where I finally caught up with the Black Aggie. The GSA installed the statue in the courtyard of the Howard T. Markey National Courts Building on Lafayette Square. It took me a couple of visits to get up close to the statue on my first visit, I was there after hours, and the courtyard is gated shut by one of those rolling gates like they use in mall stores. But if you catch the building during operational hours, you can walk right up to this more-than-century-old statue that the Smithsonian doesn't think is historic enough to sit in its basement. And let me tell you, I know it's a copy of an actual work of art by an actual time-tested, venerated artist, but it's still striking. I mean... The courthouse is no, you know, jungle temple or far-off dome, but it sort of proves my point that the Adams Memorial fits anywhere, while lending an air of mystery to its surroundings. The copy looks exact enough to my eye, which is obviously untrained. It just looks good against the red brick of the building. Also, looking closer at its arm, there is a small divot in its wrist. It's not as obvious a gas as what Clotho sports, but who knows, maybe someone did try to cut off the arm of the Black Aggie. Maybe it was the Black Aggie herself. Even more interesting, the courthouse is just around the corner from the White House, which is literally a block away. You 
exit out of the courtyard and you turn left and there you see the colonnaded white face of the place where the leader of our country brushes his teeth. It's also, and this is really interesting, it's also only about 500 feet away from the spot where the house once stood where Clover Adams killed herself. On that rug in front of that fireplace, it's right there. Today is the site of the Hay Adams Hotel and is, of course, supposed to be haunted by her. So all of this means that Clover Adams, whose suicide was the catalyst for this entire story, for this entire existence of all four of these statues, is part of an almost syzygy of funerary figures. There's one above her remains, where she ended up, and an identical one, very close to the spot where she herself left those remains. And that's it. That is the story of the Adams Memorial and its sister sculpture, its unwanted sister sculpture, the Black Aggie. I'll put a link in the show notes to my site, oddthingsiveseen.com, which has more about this story and photos of all these things that I'm talking about into this microphone. It is well worth learning about and easy to visit. I'll also include all the addresses for all the pieces. So if you find yourself in D.C. or in Maryland or in New Hampshire, you can go see it yourself. And I highly, highly recommend you do so. In the coming episodes, I'll tell you about more odd things I've seen. Maybe the burning ghost town I visited in Pennsylvania. Or the rainbow-colored image of the Virgin Mary that I witnessed on the side of a bank in Florida. Maybe the time I spent the night at a murder scene in Massachusetts. We'll see. Or here, I guess. Thank you for listening to Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast.